One of the most remarkable facts about the universe is that everywhere we look, we see points of light. We see the universe illuminated as it is because it's full of stars. In our own Milky Way galaxy, we have hundreds of billions, perhaps up to 400 billion stars. And our Milky Way is just one of two trillion galaxies within our observable universe. Yet, surprisingly, despite all of this, one of the biggest puzzles in all of science, in all of astronomy, is the puzzle of how do stars actually form, where do they come from, and why do they have the properties that they do. The origin of stars is something that we've worked very hard to understand, from how you go from a cloud of gas all the way to igniting nuclear fusion inside a core of something that contains hundreds of thousands, millions, or even maybe billions of times the mass of Earth. How do we do this? How do we uncover the origins of stars? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Mike Chen. Mike is a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria in Canada, and he's one of the premier researchers into the origin of stars in our universe. I'm so pleased to have him on the program. Mike Chen, welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Hey, it's my pleasure to have you here. So when let's get right into this. When we think about stars, you know, I like to think about we have stars like our own sun, which is what we call a population one star, which has been through a lot of generations of processing. We have lots of heavy elements in our star. It's part of why a planet like ours, which is rocky and which has all these ingredients for life on it, is able to exist. Where did a star like our sun come from? That's a very good question, Ethan. So stars like our sun, really all the stars in the universe came from the collapse of these molecular clouds. So these giant space clouds is mostly made of hydrogen and helium. And so what you really need is for these clouds to form this dense structure that the gravity can get holds of these body of gas. And when enough gravity actually uh, can pull the gas together, it collapses it and actually pack it into a very hot and dense object that can go on to ignite nuclear fusion. And that's actually how you're actually born and birth a star. And that's and that's like that's a conventional that's a classic explanation. But we know there are these tremendous details that that we don't often talk about. Like if I said, okay, Mike, here's here's a cloud of molecular gas, and you said perfect, perfect, and I'll say I'll even throw in like one or two percent of heavy elements of elements that aren't hydrogen or helium, so that you might be able to get something like a carbon, oxygen, silicon, etc. Rich world like planet Earth. You throw those in there, and maybe when you form the star, um, you'll form some planets around it, some of which might be rocky. But if I said, I'm going to give you this cloud of gas, and you said, okay, we're going to take this gas, we're going to let physics do what it does, and we're going to wind up with a star, how long are we talking? How long do I have to wait before I go from this uncollapsed cloud of gas to something that actually has nuclear fusion igniting in its core? 
Right. So the process from which uh, the dense cloud, dense part of the cloud actually collapses to form into star, we're talking about less than 10 million years, often in terms of just a few million years. So on an astronomical timescale, that's actually fairly short. Uh, typically, a Malika cloud exists about exists for about 10 million-ish years before the newly born star actually start blowing them apart. So it's about the question of which stage of the star formation we're interested in, but typically, yeah, no more than um, tens of millions of years. But that's, you know, on a human time scale, tens of millions of years seems like a really long time. But on an astronomical time scales, you know, the universe is over 10 billion years old. So we're really talking about like less than a tenth of a percent of the age of the universe is what it takes to go from a molecular cloud that doesn't have any stars in it to something where star formation is basically done, that you've collapsed the parts of the clouds that are going to collapse and the hot new stars that you form blow all that matter away that's going to form new stars. Um, and so when we look at that, how typical is it to wind up with a star like our sun versus how typical is it, is it to wind up with stars that are much more massive or much less massive? And when we do form stars, are we likely to say, oh, we just have this region of space, we're going to form something like our sun, and that's kind of it? Or are we more likely to say, you know, the majority of star formation comes in these enormous regions, something like you might find in the Orion Nebula or the Omega Nebula or the Eagle Nebula? How likely are we to form a star like ourselves uh, kind of in isolation or in relative isolation versus in one of these enormous dense clusters? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so in terms of type of stars, the cool thing about the universe is that there seems to be a budget of, for a given body of material, how many more massive stars are going to form versus how many medium-sized stars are going to form and how much dinky stars are going to form. And the sun, our sun's mostly kind of medium-sized in the sense like it's not as numerous as what we call the red dwarfs, but it's not as rare as the very highly massive stars that could be tens and you know at least 10 times the mass of our sun. And so in that sense, you touched upon actually a very good question in terms of it's one of the holy grail to understand how did this budget came from. And so our sun, it's, um, it's not the most common kind of stars in terms of its mass. And the other part, it's, uh, yeah, we're not formed in as densely populated massive cloud environment like Orion. But I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into to understand once the stars are born, do most of these cluster stars stay together or they drift apart? And I must confess that I don't know in my personal research what kind of cloud our sun in particular came from. But I can say in general, our type of star is not atypical uh, in the sense that most stars actually form in the cluster environment. But now this question, are they in a small dinky cluster or are they in massive cluster like you mentioned before, like Orion and Cygnus or other um, well-known star from region that's just pumping out these massive stars along with uh, numerous other stars?
No, and I I love this because you're taught you're now you're taking us right into the frontiers of where we are. That that a few generations ago we didn't know do stars form in isolation or do they form in clusters? And now we know they almost exclusively form in clusters. That's where the overwhelming majority of them form. But like you're saying, we don't know do they form in small clusters, medium size, large clusters? Where do we get most of the stars that we're from? And because we're coming around and looking Looking at this and asking these questions about ourselves four and a half billion years after our star formed, we're the only one left. We don't have other stars around us that were born in the same cluster, certainly that we can point to and say, oh yeah, that one's definitely from the same cluster, because clusters dissociate. The stars that you form within them, they fly apart, usually within a few hundred million years, almost always within the first billion billion years. And so when we look back four and a half billion years later, we we don't see any of that. The universe, I feel, has this problem that wherever we look, whenever we look, all we see are the survivors. Just like we don't know how many planets our solar system was born with, because we only have the eight planets, the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud left today, we only know from our sun, from the stars we see, all we see are the survivors. But when we look around us, we see lots of things that are both in clusters and in the process of clusters dissociating. In fact, the, the closest star cluster, and I go back and forth on this, sometimes I'll call it a stellar association, to us is the Hyades. This is located just, I think, less than 200 light years away, and it's this collection of many, many stars that clearly all originated from the same star cluster, but they're in the process of flying apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that's very exciting lately uh, going on is that we have Gaia mission that started really uh, measuring both the position and what we call the proper motion, so the movement of the star's uh, position in the sky. And also we have measurement radio velocity, so how fast the star is actually moving towards away from us. So we're actually trying to map out a lot of where our stars going and where they're coming from just based on this new space mission. And that's exciting even in my field, even though I don't directly work with stars that has formed, is that it gives us an idea that we can backtrack the motion of the stars and start asking questions. Do they came from the same clusters? Where do they actually originally come from? And where are they going afterwards? So I think Gaia is going to really change our understanding of and reveal, actually shed a light on where do a lot of these clusters came from and are they initially tightly bound? Or if they are just like, you know, being slingshot once they're born, kind of deal out of the cloud, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, and that's that's something that I think we're still figuring out. And what's remarkable to me about Gaia, because, you know, I'm I'm old enough that I started studying this stuff before we had anything like Gaia, like the best... Uh, the best parallax measuring tool we had was Hipparchos, and that was great and revolutionary in its own right, 
But looking at what Gaia is giving us now, to me, the big, big revolution that comes with Gaia is not only the sheer number of stars that we get parallax data for so we can determine the distance to it. And it's not just the precision of the radial velocity measurements that we get so we can say how quickly is it moving relative to us and, and get really solid measurements for that. It's the fact that we can get these proper motions for so many stars that we can actually detect these minuscule transverse motions, not the ones along our line of sight, but in the plane rel like perpendicular to that, where we can see in sort of these XY directions, not just in the Z direction, how are all of these stars moving. So for the first time in history, people are writing papers calculating the trajectories of things like Pioneer 10 and 11 and Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 as they leave the solar system, and they're able to calculate which stars will make close encounters with all of these spacecraft over the next million years. We've never been able to do anything like that before. But you're absolutely right that a mapping mission, a precise mission like ESA's Gaia, which is, I believe, going to get us parallax for a billion stars in the Milky Way, is this is just unprecedented. And when you start applying it, like you said, to learning about where do these stars, once they form, where do they go? What type of cluster did they come from? You can learn all sorts of information about that. I'm curious from your perspective, what are the most exciting things that we don't know about these clusters that that Gaia is going to teach us? Will they teach us about the density of these clusters? Will they teach us about what types of clusters in terms of number of stars and size of cluster that most of the stars in the universe came from? What what are we going to be capable of learning that you're most excited about? Right. So in my own particular field, uh, I think one thing that would be really neat is for one that Gaia does actually provide additional way to figure out distance. And so the issue is actually for me personally, I look at these Malika clouds. And one of the biggest question is, depending on how close and how far away the cloud is, our estimate of the total mass and basically total gravity changes if we don't have a good concise measurement of actually what the distance is. And so star to be able to pick out these baby stars and say, okay, we have a better sense of, for example, how precisely is Orion Nebula away from us actually give us much more precise measurement of mass, the size, the separations between these dense structures in the cloud. And that give us a lot of leverage to really understand what's the, the initial condition, the condition that drives the formation of stars. Uh, another one that's a little less about uh, within my expertise, but I think will be exciting is as we have alluded to before, um, understanding how what do a lot of these clusters typically look like? Because uh, basically we have a decent idea of the most what we call embedded stage of protostars. So when you form the stars, most of them are still being hidden behind these molecular cloud, and actually a lot of dust in the cloud actually obscure your view in the optical wavelength. And sometimes we could actually kind of get a peak with infrared, uh, basically infrared uh, wavelength, and we can look through the cloud and try to get a sense of what the clusters look like. Um, but anywhere in between, I think, is something that we, it's about on charter territory, is in a sense that once you start blowing away the cloud, blowing the clouds, uh, the clouds apart, what does the history look like? And my impression is that Gaia would also really give us an idea. It's 
for example, what's the how many members are typically in these clusters? How many stars are there? As well as what's the typical distribution of the mass of stars? So what kind of uh, stars are in these members of clusters? And then think we can use that to backtrack and reveal, okay, what's the physics that ultimately builds these clusters and actually sets things in motion? That's really great because what you're describing now, it sounds like it's a detective story, right? If we were stuck here on Earth and we only looked in the same wavelengths of light that we could see with our eyes, and this is what we did in astronomy for, for generations until we started exploring other wavelengths, we started getting into infrared astronomy, and we started going to space so that we didn't have the atmosphere to contend with, and also those limited atmospheric windows we could look through. That's the type of astronomy we were doing is we would look at these clusters, we would look at these star forming regions, we would look and we would see all this molecular gas and we would know, oh, we are forming new stars in here. And sometimes you would even see star clusters that have successfully blown away enough of that light blocking dust to reveal them. But most of the time you're obscured, you're limited in what you could see. This has changed a lot in the last couple of generations, both as we've explored infrared astronomy, which is incredibly useful because all of this dust, all of this light blocking material, it's of a specific size. These grains, these dust grains, these gas molecules, they're all of specific sizes that are better at blocking shorter wavelength light and worse at blocking longer wavelength light. My general rule is if your wavelength of light is longer than the size of your dust grain, you're going to do a bad job of blocking that light. And this is why a telescope like Spitzer, which was just decommissioned last month, was so revolutionary is because NASA's Spitzer, when it comes out and it says, I'm going to go look at what's out there, it can look in these long wavelengths of light that aren't blocked by that dust. So you could see what's behind it. You could see this cool gas, the warm gas, the protostars, all of this stuff that you can't see in visible light in the optical alone, they suddenly get revealed to you. And that for me is remarkable because with Spitzer, for the first time I feel we were really able to see inside these star forming regions, to look past this dust, to look past this gas, and to actually see what's forming and when, that we didn't need to wait until these stars had blown off the material around them in order to be able to see them, that we can see them even as they're in the process of being formed. Absolutely. And another one that's actually very exciting in terms of current development in astronomy, especially in infrared astronomy, is the fact that, that we also have the SOFIA telescope. Basically, you have an infrared telescope that's being installed on this jumbo jet, the Boeing 747 jet, and you literally just drill a hole for the telescope there, and you fly around above most of the atmosphere so you can get a good, clear view of infrared light coming from space. And one thing we're actually hoping to utilize, as mentioned before, um, the dust actually uh, are both good at obscuring light with wavelengths shorter than the dust size itself, but also emits light. The neat thing about them is um, if they are aligned with magnetic field due to the aspect ratio, they actually polarize light in a certain way, and that give us, uh, gives us information on what the magnetic field is like in these clouds. And so it's very important for us uh, simply because um, the story of how you collapse a cloud to form stars is basically a fight between gravity, turbulence, 
thermal pressure and magnetic field, where magnetic field kind of you can imagine there are threads that supports the gas uh, additionally from uh, collapsing due to gravity. And so to really understand what's the ingredient the forces behind star formation, we really need to start probing with magnetic field. And SOFIA is a beautiful instrument to start probing that. Another one is ALMA has a very beautiful capability at looking at the magnetic field from dust polarization at even longer wavelength. In this case, we're talking about microwave, which is longer than infrared itself. No, and that that I think is incredibly important. Normally, when I talk about, oh, things are fighting in astronomy, like it's a race between this and this, normally there's only two things at play. But as you say, when you form stars, you can have... Um, you can have contributors from lots of different things. You get the magnetohydrodynamics, you get the turbulence, you get the thermal pressure, you get gravitation, and you also get these magnetic fields that come into play. And I really like what you brought up about polarization because we normally think that, you know, light comes to our eyes in whatever wavelength it comes to, and it comes to our telescope's eyes, and we'll construct an image. We don't normally think about polarization as being an entirely second type of image that you can get from the same data. But it does. If you think about light as an electromagnetic wave with its, you know, it's got its oscillating in-phase electric and magnetic fields that move perpendicular to the direction of propagation. So as that light comes towards us, you have these electric and magnetic fields that are passing through, you know, whatever your medium is. And if this medium also has magnetic fields in it, it can induce something called Faraday rotation, where the light basically is going to get polarized in a particular fashion, or its rotational polarization gets shifted by a specific amount, where you can say, oh, now I can reconstruct the strength and the size of my magnetic field based on where am I looking and how is this light polarized. I'm so glad also that you brought up Sophia for this, because there is that other option. You don't have to just look with what you can see from the ground, and you don't have to spend all that money to send things up to space, where then you've got this locked-in technology of whenever I built this, like we did with Spitzer, where I built my instruments, I launched my observatories. Sophia is great because it comes back down to the ground and you can upgrade the instruments on it to improve and improve and improve as the technology gets better to improve your observations. So can you tell me what it is specifically about Sophia at its high altitude, some 40,000 feet above the surface of the Earth, and with its state-of-the-art instruments that makes it so good at observing what's going on with these magnetic fields in these dense clouds of gas and dust. Right. Um, so as you've alluded before, one of the things that atmospheres are really good at is blocking now a lot of wavelengths of light that's not visible. And so one of them is infrared. And so a lot of extra water vapor in the atmosphere blocks out most of infrared. And that's why often you prefer to have a telescope built on fairly high elevation, even when it's ground-based, simply because, one, there's a lot of actually turbulence in there that distorts the image, but also there's the, a lot of water vapor, especially when you start going to infrared wavelength. And so Sophia, as mentioned, is really good in the sense that it flies above most of the atmosphere, and yet it does not 
has the constraint of a space mission, whereas one's expensive, and once you launch it, that's it, you can upgrade it. And so that's one beautiful part about Sophia, is that you can do these upgrades, you can actually fly missions, you can do service, and on these uh, instruments, and more importantly, you can actually refill the cryogenic, uh, which uh, for a lot of these infrared, you really have to cool your detector down to a very, very low temperature. And so often with space mission, once you run out of cryogenic, that's actually the end of the lifespan, which limits um, the missions like Spitzer, like Herschel, and so forth. The other part about uh, SOFIA is that it's reasonably large aperture uh, telescope in the sense that I can remember exactly the aperture, but it is a relatively large telescope. And so that also gives you unprecedented resolution in that wavelength that uh, due to constraint of payload on the space mission, it's something that um, yeah, you just simply get higher sensitivity because you have a larger light collecting area. And you also have basically higher resolution because the aperture of the telescope is also larger than your uh, space mission counterpart. So when when I look at a stellar environment, I know that they're not all created equal. Um, if I look at where I'm forming stars, I can say, okay, well, in addition to having star-forming regions of different size and different masses, um, I also have ones that have different compositions, where I'll have some environments that are very uh, pristine, where I'll say, okay, um, I'm looking at either a very young cloud of gas or a cloud of gas that's forming stars far off in the galactic halo, where maybe instead of having one or two percent of that star forming material being made out of heavy elements like we did for our sun and like we do in many nearby star forming regions, maybe I only have a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent heavy elements where most of it's hydrogen or helium and nothing else. And maybe I will have these big magnetic fields there. Maybe I will have, you know, catastrophic events nearby, something like a supernova, something like recently formed nearby stars. But maybe I won't have any of that. Maybe I'll be in a relatively quiet environment where I don't have lots of electric or magnetic fields. When those things are present or absent, when I have either large amounts of heavy elements versus small amounts of heavy elements, or where I have negligible magnetic and electric fields versus very strong ones, what does that do? What do we expect that does to change the story of star formation? Right, and those are very good questions. What's the ingredient on to what's the recipe really bake stars in in the universe? So let's start with metallicity in the sense of how much of the heavy elements are in the cloud, and so most of the heavy elements in these molecular clouds are locked up in the form of dust. So a lot of dust grains will have a lot of silica compound, carbon compound, and so forth. And the most important part of what it does is actually it's a, both a very good regulator of temperature. So it turns out that dust is actually really good at emitting away a lot of thermal energy. And so once you cool the cloud down to the right temperature, where the thermal pressure aren't really uh, keeping the cloud bounded and gravity can start to dominate, um, the dust grains plays a very important role in that sense that it really cools the cloud down. And so one of the biggest mysteries we are trying to figure out is what's, what's the first generation stars, uh, how exactly do you form the first generation stars? Because we know early on in the universe, uh, when you have most pristine gas, there's basically no metal, there's no dust 
in the cloud, and that makes cooling very, very difficult. And so a lot of theoretical model has predicted that the first generation stars with very little um, metals must be very massive because um, you couldn't cool, cool down the cloud. It means you have to actually support a really large amount of mass before it can collapse. So that's one major distinction between the early pristine kind of cloud versus the more contemporary the current clouds that we see in Milky Way or most of our cousins and neighbors of the Milky Way is that we actually, because there has been so many generations of uh, star formation going on in these galaxies, that most of them have about 1% of mass locked in uh, dust in the form of heavy elements kind of deal. So that's one major uh, difference in terms of how that's going to affect the, uh, the, the formation star. The other one in terms of magnetic field, that one's actually a lot harder to measure. One thing that's actually really neat, uh, if you have a chance to look up, it's a um, Planck dust polarization map of on the Milky Way, really. And you can see where the, the structure of magnetic field looks like in our Milky Way. And so a lot of our clouds in the Milky Way sits roughly on the disk, and they're fed by magnetic field. And now the question, of course, is how strong are they? And that has mostly an effect on the stronger your magnetic field is, the more likely it's going to support the cloud against collapsing. And that has consequences on the efficiency of how efficient, how effective are you at pumping uh, stars out of these gas and how easy you can collapse them. And also the other thing that potentially may make a difference is what's the distribution of mass that you can make? What's the different kind of stars that you're going to make out of the same material? So for the most part, those are some of the things we expected from a theoretic model on what these different forces or um, basically differences in clouds can affect star formation. Uh, but the hard part is basically now we have telescope, we know the universe. Can we go and look and see if the universe, the clouds, does behave like what we expected in theory? Uh, and that's actually still a missing link in puzzle. It's precisely how, for example, magnetic field shaped the way uh, stars are formed. And how strong magnetic field is actually realistic is another big question that we're still trying to get to the bottom of. Yeah, and that's, uh, that actually brings me up to one of the uh, quotes that I've heard very frequently that makes me bristle every time I hear it, which comes from uh, Carlos Frank, who talks about how, what a shame it is that we are simulating all these things about all the galaxies in the universe, and yet we don't know how even one star forms. And I, I every time I hear that, I think to myself, oh, really? Are we still, are we still talking about this? But in a sense, it's true, in the sense that when we do our simulations of how stars form when we get into those nitty-gritty details and we look at the universe we have versus what simulations give us we're still working to understand why the simulations tell us things that that maybe don't match what we observe in every detail i love that you brought up that the idea of magnetic field strength and distribution will determine what sort of stars you give out get out because we have two big questions a question of what we call the initial mass function which says for 
any distribution of matter you get that's going to collapse and form stars. What percent of stars will you get that are these hot blue stars that are destined to go supernova? What about these stars that are heavier than the sun that are going to end their lives in planetary nebulae long before, you know, complex life ever would have a chance to take hold on them? What are the fraction of stars you're going to get that are going to be sun-like where they're either F-type, G-type, or K-type? And what are the types of stars that are going to be red dwarfs when we look around in our local neighborhood we're seeing that about 75 to 80 percent of the stars we see are these low mass m-class red dwarf stars but when we look at these star forming regions where we have these actively going on M-class stars are the hardest ones to see, and instead what we tend to see is dominated by these brightest, most massive objects, which as you say, at least in the late-time universe, seem to be very rare in numbers, seems to be less than, much less than 1% of all stars are these very heavy stars that will eventually go supernova. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And another neat thing about thinking about these massive stars is that the more massive the stars are, the more short-lived they are. So typically what happens is they're once they're born, they quickly evolve, start blowing apart the cloud, and they go supernova, which for one, it regulates the clouds that you might start really destroying the environment that they were born in. But two, a lot of heavier elements are synthesizing these processes. And so they have an important, they're one important driver to really determine what the chemical landscape of the universe looks like. And uh, another interesting thing is these massive stars typically live, again, only a few million years, maybe tens of millions of years, where some of the smallest stars or even the medium sized stars like our sun lives to tens of billions of years. And so uh, knowing the initial mass function, basically what kind of star do we make and how many of the different kind of stars we make given the given mass is actually very important and one of the fundamental questions in astrophysics in understanding how the universe evolve and give us what we have right now. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's one of the key questions, I think, no matter what aspect of the universe you're studying that comes up over and over again is you say, okay, if we know what the universe was like in the early stages of the Big Bang when things were very young, then the big question we're asking is how did the universe grow up? How did the universe grow from what it must have been like early on to become the way we see it today? I've, I've been a fan of saying that the Hubble Space Telescope, its most remarkable achievement is that it showed us what the universe looks like. But the successor telescope that should be going up next year, the James Webb Space Telescope, whose focus is primarily going to be exactly where you're talking about needing to look in the infrared, is going to teach us how the universe grew up. What you were just talking about is these stars that must have formed back before there were metals, back before there were these heavy elements in the universe. They should have been much heavier because it takes more mass to collapse a star, to collapse to a star when you can only cool inefficiently. It's been a while since I've looked into this, but I believe that 
they expect cooling to be primarily driven by molecular hydrogen or the H2 molecule in these very, very early first generation stars. But we've never yet seen a population of first generation stars, but we expect them, at least theoretically, to be very different from the stars we have today. Rather than having the average mass of your star be about 40% the mass of our sun, which is what we get today, I think we expect the average star will be something like 10 times the mass of the sun, whereas the heaviest stars we see today are two or 300 times the mass of our sun. We might even expect to find stars that are thousands of times the mass of the sun in the early universe. And so I really feel that the James Webb Space Telescope is our first chance as a species to gain that knowledge, to learn what were these very first stars, what we call the population three stars, which are today only theoretical. Uh, what do they look like? What are their properties? And James Webb, more than any other observatory, really has an unprecedented potential to answer that for the first time. Yeah, and that makes it really exciting time to be around in the sense of just seeing these outstanding observatories ready to take off and basically explore these uncharted territories uh, of the cosmic origin of both stars, how the earliest um, galaxies form and evolves and so forth. And one thing you've also touched upon that was actually quite interesting, it's the notion that we could potentially form these stars are hundreds of times the mass of our sun or even thousands of the mass of our sun. And if when they die, they collapse into black holes, it may give us the insights into how exactly we built the most massive black holes in the universe, which are what we call supermassive black holes that could be up to easily million times the mass of our stars. And they usually reside in the middle of galaxies. But one of the knowledge, um, uh, gap in knowledge we have right now is we know how to form black holes that are a few times the mass of our sun. It's not too difficult. And we know supermassive black holes exist, which are millions times more massive. But we don't really know how to get there. And there doesn't seem to be black hole that's in between. And so being able to understand what does the first generation star look like and how massive they are and how exactly do they die? Do they form into black holes and so forth? may help us answer this mystery that's beyond just simply where do stars come from, but also where do the, these supermassive black holes in the universe came from? And that itself is actually very exciting as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating. We have these supermassive black holes that, you know, I would say are a theoretical challenge to get to be these very heavy masses that we see them at very early on in the universe unless you have some way to form these massive seeds very early and a population of black holes that are hundreds or thousands of times the mass of the sun that could merge together because we do observe, and this is a little later than what you do, but we observe in, say, a a star cluster as it evolves, we observe this phenomenon called mass segregation, where basically the heavier masses in your cluster, if you have a large cluster of a large number of stars of all different masses, the heaviest masses tend to sink to the center from their mutual gravitational interactions, while the lightest mass objects tend to get these kicks and get gravitationally ejected in a process that we call violent relaxation 
relaxation. If something like that happened early on, where you had hundreds or thousands of these large black holes that were hundreds or thousands of times the mass of our sun, you could easily build your way up to a million solar mass supermassive seed black hole that could then grow into these multi-billion solar mass behemoths that we see today or even when the universe is just a few billion years old. But until we get those direct observations to confirm, hey, this is our best theoretical idea, let's find out if that's what the universe is doing or not, we're not going to know for sure. We're just going to have this idea, but we have to go out there and gather the observational evidence to test it. And to me, that's what's so exciting about astronomy in the 2020s. This decade, I feel like, should reveal those answers to this and many other questions about how stars are forming and how they teach us how the universe grows up. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and, and another cool thing actually regarding mass segregation that has mentioned it's uh, even though what I study right now does not really look into how exactly do you grow this supermassive black hole, it's still an active field of research to understand why does some of these more massive stars sink deeper into these clusters and they tend to cluster together. And so what we do in the field often is um, trying to understand uh, what are the density structure cores? Are they also mass segregated in the sense that do we actually form these dense structures in the cloud first that are clumped together? And that's why these uh, uh, cluster stars are the way they are, or do these things basically evolve afterwards? So that's actually another interesting topic that you kind of brushed upon. Um, but it is something that we also actually try to understand from the earliest phase of star formation, rather than waiting for the stars to form and start understanding like, okay, what's the what's their position, what's their velocity, and where are they relative to each other in the cluster environment kind of deal. No, and this, I think, is a real nice segue into talking about what you actually do work in, because you're, you've explicitly worked on, hey, when we look into these regions that either are forming stars now or should be forming stars in the very near future, um, what you're able to do, which is just remarkable to me, both in terms of the advance of the technology that allows us to do it, and also what we're capable of learning from doing it, is you're actually able to map out individual gas structures around these um, around these either cores or clumps or protostars in these star forming regions. And this is something that to me, this was, this was not even imaginable just back when I was a grad student some 15 years ago. And now this is, this is, I feel like a common thing where you're not only just mapping out these structures, you're looking at individual molecules. You're able to map out things like ammonia. You're able to look at at, you know, oh, okay, something's being heated and we're getting molecules that are emitting light. We're getting these emission lines coming from them. And there is so much you can learn by studying this gas, by looking at these structures. If you had to, uh, if you had to tell a general audience what, what you hope to learn from doing this, what you hope to learn by mapping out, you know, what do we see as these structures, as these massive structures inside these regions, what does this have the potential to teach us? 
Right. And so as I've referred to, one of the holy grails in star formation is to understand where the initial mass function comes from. And of course, that itself is very ambitious. But to understand where that comes from, we need to know how the dense structure in the molecular cloud forms. And one way to do it is basically you'd make observation and try to understand what did the molecular cloud look like and trying to compare it to these hydrogen, uh, magneto-hydrodynamics and just say, okay, from the simulation, do we have a cloud that looks like the real life kind of deal? And so one thing that you could do is simply you can do a uh, comparison of the morphology. So what's the shape, the distribution, and the mass of these cloud look like? And you say, does the real life looks like the theory? But another thing that has been underutilized is the fact that these gas are highly dynamic. As I mentioned before, it's basically interplay between turbulence, um, uh, magnetic fields, gravity, and thermal, um, thermal heating kind of thing. And so with radio telescope, when you observe molecular species, you have these emission lines that actually give you what they call the Doppler shift, uh, Doppler velocity information. So you can measure how fast the gas not only are moving towards you, or away from you, you can also measure how random is the gas motion uh, along the line of sight. So you can actually get a sense of how much thermal motion there are, basically microscopic motion, and how much turbulence, again, these random gas motion that's going back and forth. And together, they actually make these signature we call velocity dispersion, basically how much gas or uh, motion are randomized within the cloud. So uh, now the thing that we really, really have been pushing for lately is that we used to be able to do a radio telescope for one pixel only, basically point one part of the sky and you make one measurement. You say, okay, we have one measurement of what the gas motion is like. But what we have been really pushing with both single dish telescope, like the Green Bank Telescope, which itself is actually 100 meter in diameter, it's phenomenally large for a single dish. And also we have very large array, basically a large array of dishes. We actually now have a very good mapping capability with the new instrument to say rather than the single pixel information, we can map out the entire cloud and actually say what does the cloud look like and what does the velocity, the gas kinematic structure looks like. So what I'm hoping to do is now it's looking at the dense structure and whereas we have learned in the last decade, most molecular cloud has filamentary structures in there everywhere. And that's the consequences of turbulence within the cloud. Now the question is, once we have these uh, filaments, what happened to these filaments? Do they re-expand and basically go back to nothing and then these filaments doesn't do much? Or do they continue to actually condense due to gravity and uh, eventually basically fragments into these dense cores that are the precursor of stars? And so with gas motion, we can really get a sense of idea is uh, how much of these gas flow are flowing continuously and growing these filaments that eventually feeds into star formation and actually form and grow these cores and stars that will give us an understanding of the origin of the initial mass function. Or do we have other signature that tells us like, okay, our understanding, our model in simulation is not quite right. We're missing ingredient. Maybe the turbulence is too strong. That's not what we're seeing. Or maybe the magnetic field is, uh, is too weak. And there's also a question is how much are magnetic field lines distorted? Because that itself can change the landscape of how the dense structure looks like. And so overall, the hope is with both the image of both the spatial distribution as well as the velocity information, we can understand 
what exactly are the gas gas flow doing with respect to dense structure, and how exactly do you assemble dense mass from these diffuse cloud in the greater uh, scheme of things? You know that's that's really remarkable to me because it sounds like you are really on the cusp of answering a question that I'll say a generation ago scientists didn't even know if they should be asking. Um, it's the the story most people hear, most of us hear when we talk about forming stars, is that okay. Look, you have this cloud of gas, and it's going to start collapsing. And when it collapses enough in certain spots, you start forming stars. And these stars are going to have ultraviolet radiation and outflows. And yes, they'll make their own magnetic fields. And that will, you know, disrupt some of the interstellar medium. And you have a race going on between attempting to form new stars and the work of these hot new stars of evaporating the star-forming material. And typically, you know, maybe 5 or 10% of the total mass of the cloud will become new stars and the rest of it gets spat out into the interstellar medium. And what I think we're learning looking at, you know, these filaments, looking at these magnetically driven structures that that seem to exist is that, you know, we, we do have all of this, but these magnetic fields, they seem to cause a lot of the matter we see to fall along filaments, to line up along these lines. And can you, now we bring up this question, can you reach a threshold where you have enough matter that's dense enough and massive enough along these filaments that all of a sudden now it isn't just the electromagnetic force that's driving this, but gravity starts to play a role too. Can this be a driver of the formation of new stars or maybe brown dwarfs or failed stars? But what is it that you're going to form along these filaments or will they simply expand again and you'll wind up with nothing? As far as I know, this is not a question that we know the answer to and it's it's not even a question we knew to ask about 20 years ago. But now, thanks to the research like the work you're doing, we now understand these are not only reasonable and important questions to ask, but, but questions that this decade, observations might be good enough that we might start to be able to answer them. Yeah, and the exciting part, I think one common thing lately is that a lot of these are technologically driven in a sense that I think partially why we haven't had a chance to ask these questions is that one, on observational side, we just don't have the capability to map large regions of cloud with the, to gather the necessary information to really do these studies. But also even from the simulation side, we do not have computational power to run these detailed simulations saying, hey, given the typical condition of cloud, the turbulence and magnetic field, what do we see? And so I, I definitely feel very privileged to be living in a time where a lot of these questions are coming up because we finally have the means to actually address them because of the advancement in technology, both in the observational side as well as the computational side uh, kind of deal. 
Yeah, and I I love that you brought up the Green Bank Telescope, which is, as you say, about 100 meters in diameter, and that you brought up the Very Large Array, and you brought up ALMA, because all of these observatories, they they are, they're they're microwave and radio observatories, um, and even though they're at longer wavelengths of light, your resolution is determined by how many wavelengths of your light can you fit across the diameter of your primary mirror. So if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at, I don't know, one centimeter waves and you're putting them across a hundred meter diameter telescope, that's 10,000 waves that are going to fit across there. That's the same as if you took the wavelength of your normal light, which is, you know, more or less around a micron, and you multiplied that by 10,000. So you're talking about basically like having a a substantial mirror. You can't see it because this is a podcast, but I'm like, I'm making a circle with my two hands, and that's about the size of what I'm looking at. As good as you could see with that, with perfect ideal optics in visible light, that's what you can see with just a single large dish in the radio. If you go then and you scale to something like ALMA or the Very Large Array, which instead of 100 meters, you're talking about an extraordinary long baseline on the scale of kilometers or tens of kilometers, now you're talking about resolution that's better than you could get from space with Hubble, that's better than you can get from the largest optical observatories on Earth. You're talking about seeing individual features in a protoplanetary disk of a star that's a thousand light years away. You're talking about measuring these intricate gas structures at very high resolution in these star-forming regions that are located in a spiral arm of the galaxy. This technology is driving these discoveries, and these discoveries are driving the questions that we didn't even know we should be asking. Yeah, and in one way, the cool thing about if you compare the optical progress um, enabled by technology with the microwave is you can compare ALMA with the Hubble Space Telescope. So when Hubble Space Telescope first launched, it has been one of the most oversubscribed telescopes. Everyone just wanted a piece of um, Hubble just simply because the unprecedented uh, resolution you can get with uh, Hubble Space Telescope when it first launched. And it was one of the most widely used telescopes uh, that all the optical astronomers wanted to use. And with ALMA, after decades and decades following Hubble, we finally have technology to do these long baseline interferometric measurements. And we actually achieve resolution despite the much longer wavelength in the microwave, a better resolution than Hubble Space Telescope. And if you look at a number of um, astronomers who try to apply for time to observe ALMA, it's comparable or even, even more competitive than Hubble Space Telescope has been historically. And so you can tell, like, whenever a new instrument with that kind of unprecedented resolution comes online, it really gets the astronomer excited and really pushes the frontier of our knowledge because we have this new capability that we just never had a chance to use before. And so that's really, really exciting. Yeah, I I think that's that's sort of the amazing thing where where we we had this story and better information and better data causes us to refine the questions we're asking and push in directions we didn't know we should be pushing in. So now when you take a look at where we are and the types of questions we're asking and the information we have from our current technology, 
are you willing to look ahead to what's coming over the horizon over the next few years, maybe even the next couple of decades, and sort of speculate as to what sorts of questions we expect to be able to answer and what sort of possibilities that we can't investigate today might me might we be able to investigate uh, in those coming years and decades thanks to new technology? Right. I think two things I'm kind of envisioning is on it's basically on two fronts. Uh, for one, is that we're always pushing for higher, higher resolution, and that has always been a way astrophysics, at least observationally, has really been pushing the boundary. So the finer you can resolve something means either you can look further away with the same size and res, uh, resolution, or you can look at something more in details. And that is one thing I'm looking for in the sense that having higher resolution is definitely well sought after. But the other part is uh, also, as mentioned before, the ability to survey, so make large mapping. And so despite the fact that ALMA has been this incredibly high-resolution, phenomenal kind of um, instrument, what's lacking is the field of view, so the ability to map a large area of the sky. And so even when ALMA mapped out the Orion Nebula recently, which has beautiful, real, some beautiful filamentary structures, it's actually really, really expensive to carry that kind of uh, survey to even completely cover the entire Orion um, compound, let alone other various different star-forming clouds in our own Milky Way. And so one thing that we are actually looking to push in the future is something known as NGVLA, something that the radio astronomer has started to envision already. It's the next generation very large array that not only actually have unprecedented resolution that's going to be even higher than ALMA, but also actually going to push for the ability to survey larger parts of sky, better kind of deal. And so my hope is that instead of looking at the current resolution mapping of these molecular clouds into what I do is that I can actually get down to better than ALMA res resolution, but instead of looking at small objects like protostars, I can look at the entire cloud with these facilities, and that will give us some um, really, really game-changing information to truly understand the physical processes, the driver behind star formation. So that's one part of it for the nearby clouds where we can get the finest detail. But I think another exciting thing is that um, we know a lot of clouds we have access to in the Milky Way are uh, smaller clouds. And the more massive clouds, because they're sitting more or less on the galactic plane, they're still somewhat confused and obscured because there's a lot of the other material along the line of sight. But what would be really neat to start looking at nearby other galaxies like the large Magellanic Cloud and look at the star formation there. And so if we can get the similar kind of resolution that like we can resolve fine details as nearby cloud and other galaxies, then we can even say more universally about how exactly do star formation take place, not just in our own Milky Way, in our own neighborhood, but how does it work in other galaxies as well as universally, hopefully we start building this more cosmic picture of what's the universal star formation look like beyond our own familiar Milky Way kind of deal. 
Yeah, and I think I think both of those things are tremendously important. In fact, when you talk about going from where we are today, where we have this incredible resolution, but only over a narrow field of view, this to me underscores the exact type of upgrades that we look at taking with our greatest observatories. You know, Hubble is a remarkable, remarkable observatory, and it was game-changing for optical astronomy when it was launched in 1990. But what people forget is that Hubble is an incredibly specialized machine because of its narrow field of view. You know, we call its cameras like the wide field planetary camera or the wide field camera. And that we call these wide just tells us how ultra narrow its predecessors were because our deepest view of the universe the Hubble extreme deep field which is a total of 23 days of continuous observations worth it was able to reveal 5,500 galaxies in a tiny tiny patch of sky that was 1 32 millionth of the entire sky W first which will be the next NASA astrophysics flagship mission after after the James Webb Space Telescope and should launch sometime in the mid to late 2020s, that is going to be something like 50 to 100 times the field of view of Hubble. So what Hubble would get with one observation, um, this thing could get with an observation of the same length, it could get an area that was 100 times as large. And I think what you're talking about of going from ALMA or the Very Large Array to the next generation Very Large Array, that's really the huge upgrade you're talking about is, yes, there'll be better resolution, but the ability to get a wider field of view, the ability to get much, much more information, and again, you're talking about a 100 or more times the amount of information, uh, this is going to be a game changer. This is just going to be so much more data. I feel that if we could push our civilization to the next level in resolution, in sky coverage across all different wavelengths, that would be the greatest boon for astronomy that we could ask for, just in terms of the amount of data we got, the amount of useful information we got, and the amount of the universe that we'd be able to view as we've never seen it before. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, that's that's an easy one. It probably isn't a good follow up to that. Um, so, that, I really love this idea of looking in in these new wavelengths of light. When we talk about stars that are forming and how they form, there are all sorts of things to discuss. What's at play? Um, what's the most important? What are the drivers here? And I wish I could ask you something as simple as, you know, is there anything that you think is underappreciated in star formation that maybe the field should be focusing more on? But I'll, I'll also fess up. I know that's a bit of an easy question because because I know that answer is going to be environment dependent. So instead, I, I'd like to ask you, based on the stellar environments and star-forming environments that are out there, is there an unusual set of circumstances, or is there a set of circumstances you can think of that that's something that isn't generally of very much importance, that doesn't generally play a major role in star formation, should 
play a major role under these unusual circumstances? Is there a place we should be looking if we want to see a specific phenomena emerge? That is a very good question. So as you mentioned, different environment definitely has different effect on how stars form. And even with our own Milky Way, there's the difference between the ones in the spiral arm, so the one near the solar neighborhood, versus near the galactic center, where a lot of things are more extreme. There's more radiation field coming from the stars there, and there is basically uh, denser environments and so forth. Uh, in terms of trying to figure out underappreciative uh, aspects of formation, that is a good question. I, I haven't actually put too much thought into it because a lot of what we've been focusing on is given these beautiful data set we've been collecting, what can we get out of it? And so I think that's definitely something we need to think more about, especially me as a young scientist. It's in terms of what are the unusual places to look that could potentially reveal something that um, breaks our current understanding. And I have to say, I need to think actually a little further about that. That's a good question. <laughs> well, uh, well, that's something that's something for future thought. Then um, this has been this has been a really fascinating discussion. I think when you are, you know, when you are right up against the limits of what is known, it's very difficult to sort of say, okay, but how are we going to push ourselves to the next frontier? And what is that going to look like when we get this data that we don't have yet? So maybe my last question for you should be, what are you most looking forward to in the immediate future as far as learning about the origin of stars? So for me personally, looking forward, it's that I've been spending a lot of time understanding magnetic, uh, sorry, understanding the gas motion itself. And, and as a lot of astronomers do is that we are highly specialized, that we're, uh, we're experts, we're specialists of certain knowledge. But the exciting part is actually start working with collaborators to say, hey, I have my expertise. I have very detailed understanding of certain processes, but how do we put these together to form a more coherent, bigger picture view of how everything comes together. And so one thing I'm looking forward is that uh, for my postdoc uh, going forward, I'll be working with a group of other star formation um, scientists who look closely, more closely with magnetic fields. And so now, as we've mentioned earlier, it's that magnetic fields can really also guide the flow of, um, of gas into these dense structures. So one thing I'm hoping to reveal in the recent time is that are the magnetic fields really tightly correlated? Are they are, do they determine the gas flow really tightly, or is the gas flow just going to do whatever it wants because simply because the turbulence is more powerful than magnetic field, or if gravity is just more dominant kind of deal? And so that have consequences of really narrowing down what's the role of magnetic field. But also the other thing that would be interesting to see is that magnetic fields are inferred from dust polarization for at least what the field line looks like in the shape and being able to say, okay, is there a tight correlation between uh, the gas flow or even the shape of the filaments may give us an understanding of, is this a good technique for us to infer magnetic field? And also, is there other ways around that that could actually give us some idea of um, what are the invisible forces really like magnetic field behind what we're observing? So in the near term, that's one thing I'm excited about. It's combine my expertise of gas flow knowledge 
with those ones that study magnetic field and say, hey, is there a tight correlation and can we build something um, a more complete and bigger picture on that front? I think that's a fascinating answer because to me, that's where a lot of the advances are right now to be made is saying like, hey, I'm an expert at this. You're an expert at this. We know both of these things interplay with each other. And we know that something related to this should be important. How important is it? Let's work together. Let's quantify it. And let's understand this environment in a way that it hasn't yet been understood. And as someone who worked on cosmic magnetic fields and how they relate to structure formation on, you know, I'll say cosmically small scales, but obviously scales much, much, much larger than that of a star cluster. Um, I, I think this is an incredibly important thing to investigate. So I'm glad you're there doing it. I'm glad you are coming up in this field now and about to get your PhD and hopefully a good postdoc somewhere. Um, and I think the last thing I'll ask you is if you have any final thoughts or takeaway messages that you would like to share with our listeners before we close this out. Uh, I'm going to go with the slightly more cliche parts in the sense that I think it's it has been a huge privilege being able to pursue astrophysics as a graduate student and now actually I'm going as a postdoc. And one thing I can really appreciate um, about astrophysics, it's the fact that even though a lot of things we study, especially the knowledge part rather than the technological progress part, doesn't wind up immediately in the society. One thing I'm constantly reminded of is Carl Sagan's famous um, pale blue dot in the sense that when we go out to discover the cosmos, um, it actually gives us an understanding of ourselves, our place in the cosmos, our connection with the universe. And I think that perspective empowers us to really move forward as humanity, uh, understanding why, why do we even bother to fight amongst each other when the universe is a wonderful place and in some ways, yes, we're insignificant and yet we're interconnected and special in our own very own way. And so being able to look into the origin of the star and just asking, where do we come from? Where do stars like the sun that powers all of life on this planet came from? I think lends uh, this beautiful perspective that I am very privileged to be standing on the frontier of in terms of learning. And uh, I'm I guess I'm just happy to share about our perspective and just encourage people to, yeah, if we have a chance to look up in the sky and just appreciate how beautiful this place is and our place in it. That is a wonderful answer. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for the reminder that without all the previous generations of stars that have lived burned through their fuel, created the heavy elements, and died by recycling that material back into the interstellar medium, if it wasn't for all of them, we wouldn't be here now. And that's the cosmic story that brought us to where we are today. Thank you, Mike, for helping us understand it a little bit better. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to the Starts With a Bang podcast. Starts With a Bang is made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to 
Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Robert J. Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berneger, Sean Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Chris Jakutas, Laird WH, Ahmed Lee Comsi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcik, Danny, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Tomas Walgren, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renike, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hip, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hannah Khan, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Nathan Hanna, Tomas Hall, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, and Philip Radilovic. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.